Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. And welcome to Show Your Work, where we can't count how many episodes we've done because we were wrong about last week. And this should be Yasik the ninth episode of Show Your Work. So thank you so much for listening. We are so flattered that you guys are sending us your notes and responding. And yeah, I mean, this is so fun for us, but especially especially rewarding because you care about work apparently as we do, as much as we do. It's reaching really interesting places and starting really fascinating discussions with people all over the place, which is really fun. When I run into people, they're like, and do you know what I wanted to say to this guy at work? And I'm like, good. (laughs) Good. I feel like we should maybe like, uh, maybe we'll premiere like a rant session. It's just people like saying, you know what I was going to say to this guy at work? And we'll just play those as bumpers at the end. (laughs) So... We want to start this week with the Oscar nominations. Yes. They came out on Tuesday. It was a new format. I didn't like it. No, because it didn't get us anything. So the whole deal with the format is that they were going to be much more modern. They were going to release them digitally, but they still released them around 8.30. Yeah, the timing was the same. It was just all in this, like all a pre-video with pre-shot clips and interviews talking about Whatever, Brie Larson saying, oh, in the past I did this and this is how I feel about that. And then the nominations ended up getting just announced on text. Like it was text screens that came up. What do you call those? Supers? What? What? <laughs> fucking font? Fucking Chiron? Whatever. You mean like a, like a card, like a preset <laughs> right. yeah, text card. Yes, sure. Um, Title cards, if you will. And you know, in the past, do you remember we would watch… Um, the nominations be announced and it was in like a, an auditorium full of journalists and they'd hear like, oh, hidden figures and you'd hear cheering. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you'd hear clapping and whooping and whatever. None of that happened. There no. was no like tension. There was no like gasps. Um, and part of that was the fun. That was part of the fun, I should say. It was part of the fun. Absolutely. And, you know, <laughs> based on the fact that it was still early and that if you're in, say, uh, when I say early, East Coast early, it was released at 8.30, which means if you're on the West Coast or, you know, anywhere sort of uh, west of the West Coast, Hawaii, you're still getting up early to cover this as a journalist, which means the only people it's actually saving the early morning for are like the interns in LA who are running around with like Sharpies and title cards. Yeah. it's It was, I don't know. I, did, I don't think I, for most of the people I talk to, and that's Obviously, like film nerds and people who d- who've been doing this for years, it wasn't. I didn't love it, so I don't know. Academy, maybe, maybe rethink it. No, we're in a time where we're talking about the Oscars, knowing its pageantry in the face of everything else in the world that's terrible. Why not give us a little more pageantry? Um, I I am with you. Uh, you know, if we want to do it that way, we could do the whole show digitally, but we don't do that, do we? Exactly. Um, 
But, okay, again, the big story was after two years of Oscar So White, this was not Oscar So White. There was much more inclusion and representation. Um, there are people of color represented in every acting category this year. Right. For the possibly first time ever, right? So I'm going to talk a little bit about the work of the work. So you are, among other things, you're, you know, an expert. And so you go on lots of different shows and you're asked to comment on these things. Were people surprised or what was the most common phrase or question that you were asked about these nominations, about the the rescinding of Oscar So White? What do people like to talk about? Well, I mean, and that was very, very commonly the question. Are you surprised? Does this mean it's better? Does this mean that Oscar So White has been solved? And of course not. Of course not. I mean, this was a pendulum swing in the opposite direction. And I'm not saying that's bad, but it has to be maintained. It can't just be one and done. And that's what the worry is for a lot of people. And that's why I think it's important to keep talking about it. You don't get the past. You don't get to erase everything just because this year you did a better job. Let's not call it a good job. It's a better job. Right. And we want to be doing this consistently and more importantly, making enough movies with people of color, with all types of people of color and with all types of movies such that there's enough to choose from, that you don't get somebody saying, well, this year there just weren't the performances to warrant it because somehow every year there are the performances to warrant white people being awarded for acting. And remember, um, people of color were represented, but there is no woman in the director category. There are no women in many, many categories. The, there is one woman in the writing category. There and you go. again, writers and directors tend to craft the film, you know, in the same way that we talk about, uh, I remember a few years back when it, Argo won Best Picture without its best director being nominated. Uh, <laughs> Lainey's smiling here. Hi, Ben Affleck. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to think of movies that can be doing as much for women as they could, given that there aren't that many films still written, still directed by women. All to say, we have lots of places to go, and we can still be very happy about where we are. We are. And we are very happy, because we were a little bit nervous, or I was a little bit nervous about Hidden Figures, um, specifically because Hidden Figures, of course, did so great at the box office But voting had ended for the Oscar nominations on January 13th, and I was worried that the members of the Academy would have missed, by the time they had to submit their ballots, would have missed that hype and that surge for Hidden Figures. But you know what? People love hype. I love if you've gone to see Hidden Figures because we've been so hyped up about it. I hope so. Uh, I think people love to be swept up in something. They love to be able to say, have you seen such and such? Uh, and so I think that actually can help if you get swept in at the right time. Uh, and in fact, I am particularly pleased that one of the nominations for Best Adapted Screenplay is for the screenplay for Hidden Figures, and it is co-written by uh, two people, by Theodore Melfi, who also directed, directed the yeah. movie, yeah, and Alison Schroeder who is a screenwriter who's in Hollywood and was kind of a, a nobody screenwriter. 
She has a great interview in LA Times where she sort of tells about having grown up with family members working at NASA and she was a, in working at NASA as a after a freshman year in university which is really fascinating and exciting and she had to fight to be the one to write the movie because she wasn't that big a deal. Uh, the producer talks about her getting on the phone and saying, I have to be the one to write this movie. And the producer says, I genuinely rolled my eyes and was like, okay, you tell me why. And when she told me why, it was kind of undeniable. So here's what kills me about this story. And you can read more about Alison Schroeder in the LA Times. She pitched 44 projects in a row and didn't book a single one. You've heard us talking about actors and the way that actors can have a dry run or a good run or not. And this is what's interesting to me about this is it happens to directors, it happens to writers. You're always kind of judged on what have you done lately. And somebody who has just pitched 44 things in a row. 44! And not gotten anywhere? I'm going to speak really plainly. People would think that's a loser. Now, look, sometimes things are going to go and then they fold. Sometimes projects are, oh, that's almost right, but we have one that's kind of like that already in production. It doesn't mean that 44 projects are terrible. But nonetheless, you can really start to get run down. You can really start to think, I'm not meant to do this. And then if you're Alison Schroeder, if you're all of us who should be pushing through you keep making noise about the things you want to do, and the next project you write is Oscar-nominated, not just uh, as, a as a film, but specifically for your work as an adapted screenplay. But what I also love is that we don't hear the writer or the showrunner stories or those stories about the 44 times you were rejected. What we do hear is the acting ones, right? I went on audition after audition for years and years and years. I played you know, extra number three for years and years and years. You hear the acting ones, but, and those are the glamorous ones. Those are the like, you know, um, I was down, I was about to pack my bags and drive back to wherever I'm from in middle America or whatever. And then um, I went for this part and I got it and the rest is history. And those are the glamorous ones, right? Like those are the ones that we know, but I love that this is a writing one. And one of the reasons for not as sexy as the, you know, the acting one. Well, it's very sexy to, to us. Me. <laughs> to us, it's sexy. But do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, one of the reasons is because if you're an actor, God love you for the amount of work and preparation that you do, but you can do three auditions in a day. You can have a terrible audition that is going to break your heart, and the next day you can have the one that changes your life. A lot of times, writers are pitching maybe two projects at a time, maybe directors are up for a couple of different things, but it really is more of a zero-sum game. Uh, my work for this week is to find out whether or not I use that phrase correctly. Um, <laughs> in that you kind of put your heart and soul into one project, try to get it off the ground, and if that's not the one, you put it aside and move on. So the momentum is much different, and that's why those stories are less sexy. And also because to get a directing job mostly involves phone calls and meetings. It's not that thing of sitting in a chair in a room next to all the people who look like you and then you have your three minutes of chance. It's a lot less dramatic looking. 
Uh, but there's just as much work involved and also just as much romance, just as much kind of sexiness, as you say. And rejection. I mean, when we talk about the rejection of actors and how it's, it becomes built into their DNA, and it also affects how they see the world later on um, and how hard it is to shake. You know, we talk about this, the insecurity of actors. We talk about why they're insecure. And it all goes back to the waiting tables time in their lives. It all goes back to um, having been told, no, not quite. No, you're almost there, but not yet. Over and over and over again. And how when they become successful, they can't shake that rejection. It manifests itself differently for a writer. And to me, or for us, that's what we find so much more interesting. Well, writers have uh, an advantage in that they have the fuck you factor. Uh, You know, actors are always in that chasm of trying to be who they want you to be, but not too much because then you're not yourself and you have to be yourself. And, you know, writers and probably a lot of directors as well can put a lot of their resentment or their learning or whatever it is into what they write next. Yeah. But also it's, it's so hard for actors to, what they struggle with is what I'm trying to say is that it could have been accidental. That's what it is, right? It could have been accidental. And that's why sometimes you hear so many of them. Chris Pratt did it recently where he did an interview. Um, it was a magazine interview. Um, maybe it was GQ, one of those like man, man magazines. <laughs> and, and he, he now is using the, Sarah wrote about this really well. He's now is, is using the explanation of being ordained. He, put, he brought God into it. You know what I mean? Like, was he being tongue in cheek? No, it was like, this is what I was meant to do. This was meant to happen. And so what, what's interesting is that for a writer, you have that work right there. You sweated out that dialogue. You fucking sweated out those words. And it's something much more tangible to hold on to. Whereas for actors, that is why a lot of times to get beyond the explanation of it being accidental, it was meant to be all these explanations of it was meant to be, it was something that was written in the cards. That's what ends up happening. Um, The other thing that happens from there is that's why so many actors, if you wonder why they are ruining your life by directing or writing instead of being on camera, this is why, because it gives a sense of control. Because you can say, I want to hear this story told, and without totally digressing into studio politics, if an actor of a certain age and heft walks into a studio and says, I have a project I've written or that I want to direct, they get to do that. I saw recently that Ellen Pompeo, after whatever season uh, Grey's Anatomy is in now, 13, is going to direct her first episode. And it's a totally different type of control. And that's why the cliche exists. Well, what I really want to do is direct. Because you get to be in control of the things you want to say, how they're seen. No more accidents. And exactly. You don't have to wish that it's, uh, yeah, you don't have to think it's ordained. So here is our uh, real-time fact-checking. So that was actually Vanity Fair. (laughs) Not a man, a magazine. Vanity Fair. And as Sarah wrote, um, well, this is the quote from Chris Pratt. He said, Jesus told me to talk to you. At that moment, I was like, I think I have to go with this guy. 
for Pratt's success so extreme it scared him is explained by metaphysical intervention. Now, these are Sarah's words. This is a kind of survivor's guilt. It's, why did this work for me and not that guy or the other guy? When you audition in Hollywood, you go into a room of a dozen or more people who look just like you, they talk like you, they're probably dressed like you, and you see a lot of the same, same faces at every audition, but you get the break. Why you, why? And that is that accidental feeling. And right now, Chris Pratt is being... Chris Pratt is like, oh, why me? God. Oh, but guess what? So as you've been talking, I've been scanning the Vanity Fair article, and there's a part where it says theater. How did that start? And it says Pratt's brother. Pratt's brother is the key figure in his life, and he was doing theater. He was in a play, and I was like, that's what I want to do. So you want to talk about the guilt? Yes. You want to talk about where that comes from? Why me? Yeah. Yeah. It's why him and not his brother who arguably put him on the path in the first place. That is a tangent I did not expect us to have gone on, but this is why we love doing this. This is why it's fascinating because you see that especially in this business more than any other, people are carrying stuff on their back that is much more than just, this is the accurate fulfillment of my education that I assume happens to... uh, accountants and dentists. You know, you're not carrying people's dreams in quite the same way. On the same note of the Oscars, though. Yes. About carrying people's dreams and um, brothers (laughs) and why me and when me. Casey Affleck. Casey Affleck, as expected, nominated for Best Actor for his performance in Manchester by the Sea, probably will win. Right. I, uh, I have a confession to make, and that is that sometimes when there are, there are lots of Oscar films and, you know, everybody complains about not being able to see them all, including Academy voters, which I am not. And so sometimes if there's a movie I think I won't be able to get to see or I'm not as excited to see, I will read the script instead. You can do this too. You can Google and read it if you want to. And so I read Manchester by the Sea yesterday, and it is extremely affecting even not having seen the performance, I can't see how that's not a real close, close lock for that win. Oh, yeah. Ken Lonergan, uh, I mean, the conversation about Casey Affleck should not take away from what Ken Lonergan did, his work. He, who is the writer-director. Yes. Who uh, also did You Can Count on Me, which is one of my favorites. Yes. Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo. Yes. And uh, what was his Margaret. first film? Margaret. Oh, uh, sorry. Not, and then after that came Margaret, which was like the… Anyway, that starring Mar- Matt Damon. Um, and that film was like mired in all kinds of distribution and drama and whatever interference. But anyway, everything he does has been quite acclaimed. Yes, and and really affecting and kind of where we like to live, you know, uh, gross, uncomfortable family stuff. Uh, This Is Our Youth is a play that he wrote, uh, which you may know stars Tavi Gevinson or starred Tavi Gevinson and Michael Sarah uh, when it was first on Broadway. So, yeah, no, no disrespect to the incredible product made by Kenneth Lonergan, but we're talking about Casey Affleck. Who delivered... An outstanding performance, no doubt. Sure, absolutely. But as Constance Wu points out, 
Well, let's back up for a second. Okay. Okay. So he delivered an incredible performance, period. However, there are people who are unhappy about this. We've talked about Brie Larson uh, and her probable role in having to hand Casey Affleck awards all season because of the sexual assaults and sexual harassment allegations that he settled out of court that were mostly due to the production of I'm Not Here, the movie he was making or the mockumentary or whatever we call it with Joaquin Phoenix. That's right. And then we come to Constance Wu, who, tell us who she is, if people don't know her by name. That would make me really upset. But anyway, that's possible. Constance Wu is an Asian American actress who is the star of Fresh Off the Boat. Which is the comedy on ABC Family about a family who moves to Orlando. Uh, is it in season two now or season three? Season three, and she plays the matriarch. Right. And what's what's the character's name? Jessica. Right. <laughs> um, and Jessica is, you know, for just for brevity's sake, Tiger Mom. Sure. And you've been a real fan of Constance Wu, not just Jessica, for some time. I have been a fan of Constance Wu for some time because. First of all, there aren't enough Constant Woos, and so what Constance Wu is carrying is the knowledge that she is one of very few, and she doesn't walk away from her responsibility. It can sometimes be a burden, but she understands or she has chosen to take on that responsibility, and she uses it at every single opportunity. Shonda Rhimes calls this F-O-D, right? First, only, different. If you are the first or the only or person who is of uh, a particular race, a particular ethnicity, or a female in a certain place, that you're carrying more responsibility, and that to be an FOD is difficult. And so this week, as if we didn't love her already, she's already outspoken, she's already fascinating in the way that she talks about herself and the industry, and sort of understanding the marketing of the industry. And then this week, she said... Well, she started with, of course, on Twitter, hey... Men who sexually harass women for Oscar because good acting performance matters more than humanity, human integrity, because poor kid really needs the help, right? She was like, yay, this guy who allegedly did these things maybe is being honored for his performance, yay, yay. Now, note there that she actually calls it a good acting performance. Absolutely. She's not saying he sucked. Right. And, you know, tone on Twitter can be hard to take. But I don't think that's ever in question, right? She's, she's talking about the fact that the fact that this is a good acting performance is actually arguably the problem. That's right. Well, then she goes on. She posted a longer explanation. And within that longer explanation, I don't want to read it all, but there is this. She said, art doesn't exist for the sake of awards, but awards do exist to honor all that art is trying to accomplish in life. So context matters, because in acting, human life matters. So what she's saying is, great, it was a fine performance, but to honor the person who delivered that performance diminishes the dignity of the human experience. Can you also read the segment where she explains something to the effect of, this is why I went into acting? I know it's just an award, but I guess I'm in this career not for awards, but because the treatment of human life matters to me, so I stand the fuck up for it. Is that what you meant? That's what I meant. 
you know, on a really base level, I think that is why most actors would say they get into acting in the first place, to try to understand the human condition. You know, this is what all of us are doing on some level. This is what gossip is. You always say it's trying to understand the human condition. And so her argument is, why are we giving an award to somebody who's not showing respect for that same human condition, who thinks he's kind of above the health and safety of other people? That makes it sound like there was a hard hat issue. That's not what I mean. But who makes it seem like he's above the the rights and the dignity of the people he works with. And what is so awesome about Constance Wu is, let's be honest, Constance is not Jennifer Lawrence. Constance, you know that phrase we always use, he's going to be fine. She's going to be fine. We can't really say that about Constance. Right. For a few reasons, right? Number one, there could be backlash against her now. Number two, it's not like there are dozens upon dozens of roles that she's lined up to do, right? Like maybe, but as far as we know, she's not signing on to do any $20 million movies. Exactly. And as she tweeted herself, quote, I've been counseled not to talk about this for career's sake. F my career then. I'm a woman and human first. That's what my craft is built on. And I don't buy that as just bravado and like making people feel sorry for her. That's actually true. For Constance Wu, that is true. I'm sure her agents and managers were like, Mm, do you maybe not get into this with him? And, you know, he's got the Matt Damon and you've already pissed off Matt Damon because he accused him of being a white savior in the movie about the Great Wall of China. And now Matt Damon produced this movie. Matt Damon is putting all of his influence and resources behind Casey Affleck's campaign. Then you've got his brother, the Ben Affleck, golden boy of Warner Brothers. Do you want to take on these people, Constance? Do you want to constantly be a thorn in their side? And she's like, "Mm, yeah. (laughs) It's hard to say anything else there because you've just laid out all the reasons why not. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. You know, my biggest headline of the week that was so exciting was that Roxanne Gay uh, pulled her book from Simon & Schuster uh, an imprint of Simon & Schuster in protest to the book deal given to uh, Milo Yiannopoulos. Uh, and without getting too far into a tangent, she said, I can afford to do this and I know lots of people can't. So I want to point out that I don't expect this from everybody, but I can afford to, so I wanted to do what I can afford to. There's debate over whether or not Constance Wu can afford to take the stand that she's taking, but she's doing it anyway. Yeah, and now listen, there are degrees of who can afford to do what, right? The two women who mounted those allegations against Casey Affleck, they worked behind the camera. And if you want to compare Constance with those two women, um, they were in a position where they probably couldn't go on Twitter. They probably couldn't take the stand that Constance is taking. So when we talk about degrees of who can afford to do what, yes, Constance is in a probably better position than, than the two women who, um, who uh, sued Casey Affleck. Having said that, at this point in her career, she's building up all this momentum, Constance Wu, star of a hit TV show on ABC, has so many other opportunities or potential, and yet this is the thing, right? She's taking on these industry juggernauts. And if not now, then when? You know, she may someday have a bigger profile, or, but, you know, she's never been bigger than she is right now. So why not? You know, there's a real excitement to going 
yeah, this is how I'm going to use what I have today. And obviously, it's harder and harder to talk about anything on this podcast without politics interceding and without all the kind of activism suddenly becoming the front page news. But, you know, I really appreciate that a new vibe is this is what I can do today. This is the voice I have today and I'm willing to do it. And of course, when I talk about the two women who accused uh, Casey Affleck of sexual harassment, that would be Amanda White and Magdalena Gorka, their producer and cinematographer. Um, over the last couple of months, I've been sort of IMDBing them, looking at what work they've still been doing. And you have to you have to understand, and The Wrap did a really good piece on talking to women in similar positions who work in crew, who work in production, who are not actors, who said probably um, to a person, yeah, that kind of shit's happened to me, but I can't say anything because I've got to book my next job. There's only so few women in this position. Um, I'm already, typically, in my experience, a minority on set being a woman as a member of the crew, as a member of the production staff. So I've got to hang on to what I can. Um, so to me, all of this is a conversation about who can step up, who, do, who, who does step up, um, and what they risk when they do. And obviously watching people who are re-ranking themselves and what they can afford to do and say is really fascinating. If you're interested in keeping abreast of this, obviously follow Constance Wu on Twitter, follow Roxanne Gay if you're not. Uh, but you might also want to follow a woman named Lexi Alexander on Twitter. Lexi Alexander is a Palestinian German TV director who, uh, and film director who directed uh, Green Street Hooligans and Marvel's Punisher Warzone and has more recently been directing Arrow and Supergirl and Limitless. And she speaks really openly about the way women on crews are treated, the way women behind the scenes sort of battle with these things, because it is a different story than with actresses. And so it's really interesting to see the voices coming from all sides. Now, going forward... How do we, as the audience, support Constance Wu? Because, again, as she said, this probably isn't going to be good for her career. What we do is we keep retweeting her. We keep following her on Twitter. We, um, whenever we can on Laney Gossip, we will spotlight Constance Wu. We will spotlight here on Show Your Work. I mean, this is the way, in general, lately, the, the new entertainment works with, like, um, they look at your followers. They look at your social media impact. Yeah, let's boil this down for a second. She could be setting fires quite literally to things that if she has, you know, 5 million followers on Twitter, she's going to get work anyway. Uh, there is a hefty premium placed on how big a deal are you. So the bigger deal you make somebody, the bigger deal we make Constance Wu, the better off she does and the more worth it this is for her. Um. On that note about women speaking up, one woman did speak up this week um, related to a sexual harassment situation, Kiki Palmer. Yeah, Kiki Palmer is one of these people that you either know or don't. She's always working. She was recently in the Grease Live special that also starred Vanessa Hudgens uh, and came out this week uh, with kind of a lengthy complaint against Trey Songs because she's featured in his new video despite not wanting to be. I guess it uh, was, the video was shot kind of impromptu style at a party 
And she really didn't want to be featured in the video and in fact says that she hid in a closet to not be featured. Yeah. And I think the through line here between Constance and Kiki is that both women used new media, social media, uh, to make their case. That's right. There's a, a legal case in Kiki's case, and I think she has pursued legal uh, means. And not some, you know, Constance Wu is expressing an opinion. But in both cases, they're unafraid. They're saying their piece. They're not letting themselves be silenced by the people whispering in their ears as you so accurately imitated. You know, is this good for you? Is this a great idea? Should you maybe just do this quietly? Uh, and, you know, we are, as we speak, one week on from the incredible Women's March. And this is part of what we're talking about. Women being unafraid to raise their voices and say what they have to say and not allowing themselves to be scared into being quiet about it, to having opinions under the table, which, let's be honest, we all do sometimes. I bite my tongue all the time uh, because you feel like you can't all the time say what you want to say. You feel like you can't be as free with your opinions. So it's really exciting and refreshing to see. It's a really, and it's, it makes me really angry too about the ones who can't speak up. I mean, as you said, you bite your tongue all the time. And so when those moments occur, you realize that power is relative. One person can have all the power in the world that they think of from a certain platform, and they'll always be in a situation where they won't be the person who has the most power. I'm, you know, I have this blog, and lots of people read it, and you think that I would be able to use that platform or at least take some pleasure out of being able to be assertive. But I recently have found myself in, in, in positions where I'm with an executive who can give me an opportunity and who makes an Asian joke, who makes an Asian slur. And in that moment, what I have to decide is, do I take this opportunity that will give me a bigger platform to share my ideas or do I take a stand here right now? I wasn't Constance in that moment. And then I just, after having been humiliated in the face of a, an Asian joke, not only do I have to deal with that shame, but then I have to feel bad about myself because I go home and I shame myself. Why wasn't I Constance? Why didn't I say, hey, that was offside? Why didn't I choose what was right over self-preservation? Self-preservation is a human instinct. I chose the human instinct over the human right? I don't know. But that's what's fucked up because that guy went home and was like, ha ha, I made this funny joke or didn't think of it at all and went and had a tumbler of bourbon and went to bed and he felt really fine. But I, I'm still living with that. But arguably living with that is what gives you the fight to complain another day, um, which is also the title of uh, your next book, I assume, uh, Complain Another Day. But thank you. In, on a serious note, you know, we're all doing what we can on the days that we can, right? I read that little idiom slash cartoon last night that says sometimes courage is just saying, you know, I will fight another day. You can't always do all the things. and You have to not beat up on yourself for that because nobody's perfect. Nobody is being a perfect social justice warrior, I say, without any rancor all the time. Nobody is 
able to stand up for all the things all the time, not even the people who we think of as being real totems and talismans. We don't know what they're letting go every day because you got to do some self-preservation and sometimes you just have to check your email. So I hear you. I hear your disappointment in yourself. And at the same time, I think you also have to think about when it's going to have the most impact. If you had said, oh, that's a weird joke, I don't think it has a big effect on that executive. And it may have had a negative effect on you. You have to think about where and when each thing that you do and say has the most effect on your boss, on your uncle at Thanksgiving, uh, on your boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, and feel good about the things that you're doing rather than keep a tally of all the things that you're not. I consider that. And yet I wonder if holding on to that feeling of feeling bad about what I didn't do is going to help me pull a Roxanne one day if I have to. I don't ever want to be in that position. And I don't think anyone does. But I think that the way the world is going, unfortunately, we will continue to find ourselves in places like that. And that is what is so fucking unfair. Again, I go back to it because you're already the powerless and then you still have to feel bad about yourself. And I wonder, I, all, I often wonder who it is who has the most power. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do you mean the power to feel that if they speak up and say something, mm -hmm. that there are no repercussions? Yeah, like when we talk about power and the difference between a Constance Wu and a Jennifer Lawrence or a Taylor Swift. Go on. <laughs> well, Taylor Swift was criticized all week after the Women's March because she tweeted. And she tweeted, I'm whatever, to the effect of I'm so inspired, I'm to be, see all these women come together. And many people dragged her. Where were you? Why didn't we see you? I think for the Daily Beast, Amy Zimmerman wrote a piece about Taylor Swift, um, essentially criticizing her, not even essentially, openly criticizing her um, for her, quote, spineless feminism. Um, <sighs> those are fighting words. And so the discussion has been, what is Taylor Swift's responsibility? If there are levels of power, you could argue that Taylor has more than most. So, discuss. Okay, so the official tweet was, so much love, pride, and respect for those who marched. I'm proud to be a woman today and every day. Hashtag Women's March. You know, there's nothing offensive in there. Nope. 
But what I guess is being noted and criticized is what else is there? You are arguably the biggest female vocalist that there is right now. Sorry, Celine. Uh, <laughs> and so where, where else were you is what we're saying, right? Now, lots of people can't be at the march physically. Lots of people, you know, uh, don't, weren't able to get to it physically or had like plans or whatever. And not to say, you know, you shouldn't change your plans, but I also know you try and explain that to somebody's grandma, why they're suddenly not at their birthday party because they're marching with a pussy hat on their head, um, et cetera. There are lots of people who have lots of reasons for not being there. The argument, of course, about Taylor Swift is, well, you could have done something else. You could have made a donation. You could have made a, like, a protest video. You could have whatever. Yes? Yes, and to fairly present both sides, which is what we're trying to do, the brand of Taylor over the last, what, two or three years has been like hashtag friendship, hashtag squad togetherness, hashtag solidarity. I'm all about girls. I am a woman who has succeeded in this business by following her own agenda, blah, 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 blah. So what people are saying here, especially Amy Zimmerman in this, uh, you know, spineless feminism thing, is that she um, was more opportunistic about the situation and how it benefits her instead of really living by the spirit of what the Women's March is, which is what she claims to be. Because, of course, you know, we've talked about this. Taylor Swift can appear to be the kind of person who talks about, as you say, squads and girls and friendship without necessarily saying the capital F word feminism. And just to lay it all out there, the idea of why she might be doing this is because the sort of conspiracy theory is, well, it might alienate her conservative country base, right? Even though there's an idea that she has left that country base behind when she went to overt pop music, there is a a serious uh, a serious faction who believe that she is trying her best not to not to step out and offend anybody with conservative values with you know Donald Trump allegiances is that fair to say this is what we're talking about is it yes, not yes it's fair to say and to go further and darker as Amy Zimmerman points out in the Daily Beast there is um, a significant amount of support for Taylor Swift with within, like, the white nationalist uh, community. So apparently there's, like, a... I don't even want to name this organization's name. I don't think we should. But there's, like, a neo-Nazi movement that basically hails her as, quote, Aryan goddess Taylor Swift, um, you know, that she is the face of what's the best in the world. And let's be super <laughs> clear. Taylor Swift is not in any, any way endorsing that. But arguably, could she be doing more to denounce it, right? Is that what she should be uh, selling to her young fans? Now, we've talked a lot over the years about whether or not your pop stars should be role models for your kids, whether you should be having uh, actors and other young people as the people your kids look up to. And I've always said, don't do it. I've always said, like, let them be entertainers and let you know, the teachers and doctors and whatever clergy in your community be the people that you sort of hold up as an inspiration. 
Well, we're in really critical times right now. Things are scary. We know this. And there are more and more people sticking their neck out, right? Uh, the Women's March had, among others as speakers, uh, America Ferrara, who was so spectacular. People are like, what's next, America Ferrara? Uh, you know, women who are well-known spoke at almost every single rally and march that there was. Uh, and so Taylor Swift's overt silence can feel silent. So question one, at what level of fame do you have an obligation to say something? So, for example, we've been talking about Jennifer Lawrence. Did Jennifer Lawrence say anything? Did she do anything? Did she donate anything? I don't remember seeing anything. However, I don't know if she donated anything. Right. We don't know. Um, so, you know, there can be a question about why is this on Taylor Taylor Swift specifically, right? Or even Adele. I don't right. remember seeing anything about Adele. I don't remember seeing anything about Adele either, but I also feel like Adele might phone us up and be like, oi, <laughs> and point um, out exactly what she did or didn't do. That's right. So what is the responsibility? First of Commensurate all. Commensurate with your fame level. That's right. Yeah. Who do we expect this from? Are we unfairly dragging one person? And is it because she's using it to her advantage, right? Like that's sort of where this is coming from, the idea that if you build your career on the backs of feminism and putting girls first and saying things like there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. That was Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift said that, which I believe is a Madeleine Albright quote, which, and she said it, which perhaps was not the way Albright intended it, <laughs> uh, as a, a kind of kickback at a joke that Tina Fey and Amy Poehler made at a Golden Globes about how many boyfriends she had, just to really, you know, yes. sketch this all out for you. So the idea here is Taylor Swift talks the talk and doesn't walk the walk. That's exactly it. And uses feminism as a take-on, take-off thing whenever it suits her. Now, I was thinking about the practicalities of this, and I was thinking about something that is about the work, but also kind of a gross thing to say. Suppose Taylor Swift is sitting around at her apartment with Carly Kloss and Lena Dunham and whatnot, and is like, oh God, I really do want to march. This would really be fun, but... And then she lowers her voice and says... But God, I can only say this to you guys because you understand, like, I can't really march. Like, I might be a distraction. If I walk down the street, like, are people going to be focused on taking selfies with me and focused on me as a fan instead of marching with me? All the celebrities and women that we saw in all these marches were pretty damn low-key, as they should have been. But I have heard and seen the idea that when certain people of a certain fame level are in any given place, that they sort of steal the focus from whatever else is going on. Is this a possibility? To be fair, I was not sitting around in nightgowns at Taylor Swift's house having this conversation over a sleepover. But I can see it happening. A Taylor defender would say, or a Taylor hater, I'm trying to figure out... What devil's advocate a position to make right now? A Taylor hater would say, yeah, but Katy Perry did it. And she went to D.C. And <laughs> Duanna would say, but Katy Perry is not Taylor Swift. <laughs> no. Um, although now you've got Katy Perry fans mad at you. 
Well, no. <laughs> Katy Perry fans, you would agree with me, right? That's why you like Katy Perry, because she's not Taylor Swift, right? Yeah. Right? Um, I'm not uh, I'm not proposing that that example that I gave is, uh, you know, I don't know whether that holds water or not, but I can see her coming up with it. Here's what I was thinking. I can take a side on most things. All week, I haven't decided, been able to decide, where I am on this. Because on the one hand, while I definitely hear the arguments of the people who are like, Taylor should have been there, Taylor should do more, Taylor, and I get it, I see it. I have myself been critical of Taylor Swift for her, you know, image protection and how I feel like she's, she could be doing a lot more with her image. However, at the same time, I think about what the possibility is in terms of Taylor to do it through her art. Beyonce did not march either. Beyonce left a message the day before on, I think, Facebook or something, encouraging the women and saying, basically, I'm there with you in spirit. You're amazing. But Beyonce did give us, in 2016, Lemonade, a feminist manifesto. And I wonder, let's say when Taylor Swift's next album comes out, and it is her version of Lemonade, it is her manifesto, will that silence the conversation that's happened this week? Because in theory, if we're going to talk about the work, what does her work say? The actual work. What do you think? Well, Taylor Swift's work is always micro and not macro, right? She has been criticized for things, lines she's said in her songs that are not super feminist. She's also said, and I'll defend her to her right to say it, I was 17. I didn't know everything I know now when I wrote that line. Fair enough. I'm right there with you. Uh, you know, the what you say about Beyonce's tweet and Taylor's tweet, they sound not that different. Uh then again, Beyonce has been photographed in front of a 50-foot-high feminist sign. It's the feeling of walking the walk. It's the yeah. feeling of believing that something is authentic and uh, whether or not somebody is picking up or putting something down that they can use when they want to and not when it's for political gain, right? And Beyonce did perform for Hillary Clinton in Ohio. Yeah, A sure. week before, I think it was. Or just days, the weekend right before. There are dozens of examples, right? And it comes back to uh, Constance Wu. It comes back to doing things when there are not overt benefits for yourself. This is sort of where we come down on. This feels like it's not as authentic as it could be. Uh, the related conversation here is about Ewan McGregor, who was supposed to appear on Piers Morgan uh, to for some promotion of which film? Um, Trainspotting. Of the Trainspotting. Yeah, or yeah. the sequel. Uh, and decided not to go when he found out that Piers Morgan had been critical and disgusting uh, about the Women's March, right? He had made some comments. So that's one of those cases where it doesn't benefit Ewan McGregor to do that because then he doesn't promote his movie and he doesn't get as much press as he should and maybe he still has to do some other press obligations other places. So that's really where we get into what feels authentic and what feels like you are doing something for a cause as opposed to for yourself. But I, you know, and it all comes back to 
I felt uncomfortable all week because I couldn't decide where I wanted to land on this. But beyond discussions about authenticity, which is what you were just getting at, it's also who deserves that kind of attention. I would rather direct any, um, any possible ire that I have towards Taylor Swift at someone like fucking Piers Morgan. Do you know what I mean? Like, Piers Morgan is the host of a major show in the UK. He has been given opportunity after opportunity. And during the Women's March, my God, those tweets. During the, like, fuck you, Piers Morgan. And yet, I don't feel like the anger about Piers Morgan is equal to the anger that some people have shown towards Taylor Swift. And I feel like, here's the thing. We talk about responsibility, but we also talk about appropriate reaction. What is the appropriate reaction of hearing that Pierce Morgan during the Women's March did everything he could on his platform to discredit it, to mock it, to make fun of it, and that he still gets to go to work on Monday and continue to blah, 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 shit, shit, shit. Well, but I don't expect anything different from Piers Morgan. This is where the argument comes in, right? And I'm not into, I don't have any, any vested interest in, in raking Taylor Swift over the coals either. But this is where the conflict lies. I don't expect him to be anything more than a slug. He has proven over and over and over that that's the role he wants to play. The reason that people feel compelled to talk about Taylor this way is because she maybe, arguably, aspires to something more. To me, this raises a bigger question and not necessarily one that we can answer, but email me, tell me what you think. Email us, send in your, send in your thoughts, yell at us. Are we living in an age where artists can no longer be apolitical? It used to be something that they said all the time, right? Yeah. Oh, I don't get into that. I don't talk about it. I don't whatever. But it's not a side conversation anymore. It's the only conversation. So are we living in a time where we don't allow the people who entertain us to just be entertainers, where we need them to take a stand? Well, Pierce Morgan is, in theory, an entertainer. Sure. And... The difference between, to me, Piers Morgan and Taylor Swift is, is change going to happen by Taylor Swift speaking up? Or is change going to be happening if people like Piers Morgan could just stand down? But I don't understand why you care about Piers Morgan. He's repugnant. We knew this already. Nobody's waiting on Piers Morgan to change. We're not trying to reach the people. Because I'd rather less Piers Morgans and more Taylor Swifts at the end of the day. Sure, absolutely. That's, I'm right there with you. But I don't think there's any argument that Piers Morgan is changing the hearts and minds of the 10-year-old girls who we need to grow up to be the next generation of feminists, right? This is where the conversation is. The reason there's possibly outsized obligations on the Taylors, on her contemporaries, is because they're the ones who are the touchstones for the people looking up to them. You might not care about Piers Morgan and because you will know who Piers Morgan is and he's a slug and he's an ass. But the thing is, is that like, if we are putting energy into anything, there was much more energy in this circle at attacking Taylor Swift than there was at attacking Piers Morgan. This is what I mean about where I was uncomfortable about where to direct the energy um, and not being able to make a decision on 
where I wanted to go with Taylor Swift. And this is why uh, Roxane Gay's title, Bad Feminist, is always the one that comes back to echo at me all the time. If you pick at the different ways in which people are performative or not about what they're doing to make the cause better, then we get wrapped up in infighting. If you focus on the things that we all agree on, that's where we get to get things done. Let us pivot. Let us pivot to uh, something that is lighter, or maybe not. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised to get a uh, a trailer for a new Netflix show called 13 Reasons Why in my inbox recently. Uh, So if you don't know about uh, this show, it is based on a very popular YA novel, 13 Reasons Why, and 13 Reasons Why refers to a spoiler, which is 13 Reasons Why refers to uh, 13 notes or pieces of information about why a classmate of the main character kills herself. So like I said, light and cheery, Uh, but it is supposed to be a great show, really looking forward to it, but a few things stuck out about it to me. So this is being, it is directed by Tom McCarthy, most recently of Oscar-winning Spotlight, and it is written by uh, Tony and Pulitzer Prize-winning Brian Yorkey uh, of Next to Normal, and it is executive produced by uh, Selena Gomez. Selena Gomez, who is not much more than a teenager herself at this point. And uh, there are other executive producers as well, but this is from uh, Selena Gomez's production company. So the combination of all these things, I have to admit, really surprised me. And then I wondered whether I should be surprised or not. What do you think? Well, one of the reasons why I think some people might be surprised is because this was announced a long time ago. And um, it's taken this long for them to get it together. And what was interesting to me is that we often hear the stories about, hey, this goes into production, and then the movie literally is on screens in nine months. Whereas most of the time, development is years. Right. And so what that can mean is everything from acquiring the novel in this case to finding a writer and a director and going through drafts and all the things, and then maybe one of those people drops out or your lead cast member drops out and all those kinds of things. So that's kind of what you're referring to when you say it takes a long time. Yeah. I heard about this, I don't know, like when it first was announced that Selena Gomez was going to do this, it was a while ago. And this week, the press release came out that it's happening, that Tom McCarthy was on board, da, 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 da. And so people were like, wow, Selena Gomez has been, you know, is attached to this. But as it turns out, she's been working on this for all this time. That's how long it takes. That's how long it takes, unquestionably. Even when you're Selena Gomez. Even when you're Selena Gomez, lots of the time, this is how long something takes. What's more interesting about it to me is the combination of people. Uh... Selena Gomez, who, uh, by the way, as of my on-the-fly research, is 24 years of age. Selena Gomez is well-respected and everything, but she's not the first person I would expect to executive produce a Tom McCarthy project who just came from Spotlight. 
as we've talked about on this podcast, if you win an Oscar, if you have a project that is super well regarded, you then begin to have your pick of what comes next and line up your projects sometimes a couple of years in advance. And to your point about how long it takes, maybe, you know, people were waiting for Tom McCarthy on this project. But of all the things he could choose, he chose this project. That's fascinating to me. It's not what you expect a hard-hitting Oscar-winning director to choose next, a YA project on Netflix. Well, let's hammer home that point. Tom McCarthy won an Oscar and Spotlight was Best Picture. His next project is a YA adaptation with Selena Gomez. Now, uh, I don't know if it's his next project. He may have directed other things in the meantime that are yet to go, uh, yet to be in theaters or that are in post-production. Sometimes the way that things are scheduled can be a bit, a bit hanky. But nonetheless, uh, it was one of his priorities on his priority list to direct this project, to direct 13 episodes, or I assume 13 episodes because of 13 reasons why, uh, of this Netflix show. So what I love about this is, of course, Tom McCarthy, we've already established, directed Spotlight, but all week or for the last couple of weeks, we've been having a conversation on the blog about Selena Gomez and The Weeknd and how she was just supposedly, according to Justin Bieber and close associates of Bella Hadid slash Bella Hadid were saying that Selena was simply using the weekend for her career. I'm sorry. She's working on a project for Netflix with Tom McCarthy. Who's using who? Right. Seriously. Right. Like it, it, to me, it is so black and white. Number one, even without the Tom McCarthy angle, that The weekend, as great as his music is, was definitely not on the same fame level as Selena Gomez. That is, I don't understand why we have to argue about this. And arguably, Selena Gomez's sort of larger appeal uh, began or was capitalized on when she showed up in the big short. That's when I was like, okay, she's being sold to a bigger audience. It's not just a post-teen uh post-Waverly Place, post-Justin audience, this is her being sold to an entertainment uh, consumer at, at large. Yes, and this is why it's so bullshit to me, because when a Justin Bieber comes out using TMZ, by the way, his mouthpiece, and says, my ex is just jumping from one man to another because she needs to use them for her career, and then the press release comes out that she's executive producing a Netflix show with Tom McCarthy, who again just came off Spotlight winning Best Picture, it's kind of like, really? How is this logic? Well, no, what it is 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 slut-shaming, right? What it is is saying she needs a man for her career, which is bullshit, and it's saying she couldn't have done this or gotten this amount of press or et cetera on her own. Now, let me be clear. There are executive producers and executive producers. Uh, Many, many stars have vanity shingles and buy projects or produce them and aren't necessarily involved in the day-to-day. But you know what? That's okay. If all she's doing is acquiring great projects that fit with her brand and allowing them to be produced, and I should be clear, Selena Gomez is not acting in this production. It is, uh, she is entirely producing behind the scenes. That's okay. That is her expanding into a different part of the business. That's a smart business move. 
and one that she does not need to credit to any man or who she's fucking dating. This press release would have come out, as you point out, whether or not she was single, dating the weekend, or anybody else you want to throw at her. No, I think it's what's frustrating is obviously the undercurrent of suggestion there about the slut shaming and about, you know, who Selena Gomez is and why uh, we are attributing her success to only the people she's dated. But this in black and white was so, should have been so obvious that Selena Gomez is way up here and the weekend is kind of below her on profile and on influence and on all of that. And still, and still, that was something that was put out there. Look, even if he were on her level or above her, let's go back to what you were saying a few minutes ago. It takes a long time to put this stuff together. She was doing this and working on this and keeping it together months and months before she met Abel Tesfaya, you know? Yeah. Even if he was the biggest star going, this was already in the works. She was already working hard. She was already expanding her brand beyond a post-Justin Bieber universe, which we will get to, I assume, uh, long before she met whoever her current boyfriend is. And look, this production drops on Netflix March 31st. Maybe they'll be broken up by then. Maybe there will be somebody else involved by then. Who knows what? But the work doesn't lie. It's been there and it's, it's doing things. And, you know, as I say, she may not have been on set every day giving notes, but the fact that she has attracted such talent to the production, and frankly, uh, that she chose to acquire this New York Times bestselling book, is, speaks to a, a savviness about business that we should not discount. Um, all right. Well, now we're coming to the part of the podcast, which is becoming a regular feature, which is do we need to care about or should we need to worry about? Right. And somewhere between care and worry is the idea of serious interest or even concern where you look at somebody and go, I don't know what I think about how this is going for you. And that brings us to Sashir Zamata. Uh, Zameda. Actually. Zameda. Okay. Zameda. Sashir Zameda is, of course, one of the cast members of Saturday Night Live, which is one of those things that I feel like happens every week and lots of people watch and almost don't always talk about it because it's not new or it's so new every week that there's not always a place to have the conversation. So Sashir, who was already a stand-up comedian and an improv comedian who performed at Upright Citizens Brigade and so forth, was brought on the show mid-season two years ago when there was the very accurate uh, complaint that SNL had no black women in the cast and, in fact, wound up joking about the fact that they had nobody to play Michelle Obama. So that was two and a half years ago, and they hired uh, two black female writers, one of whom was Leslie Jones, who has become a featured performer, I think is what they call her, and then a cast member, and the other is Sashir Zameda. And I feel like I wish that she had more to do, but she doesn't always have a lot to do on SNL. She, it can, sometimes I don't see her an entire episode. And even if she's in a sketch, it is so minor. So if you are not an SNL scholar, 
that's not necessarily rare. That is something that happens to lots of cast members, sometimes for one episode. For example, last week, I don't know if we saw Pete Davidson, which that's a rarity. Uh, and sometimes it happens over and over again. There is a very interesting book written by Jay Moore, who was a cast member in the mid to late 90s, uh, called Gasping for Airtime, about how it can be to not be written for or to not feel like you're showing up a lot. And I think that it happens to all kinds of cast members who are, you know, go on to have all kinds of careers after the fact. We'll get to that in a minute. If you're not being written for at SNL, it can be very sad and kind of isolating because you're there, but you're not really there. Uh, and so in the case of Sashir Zameda, I think what's really interesting is everybody I talk to her about her loves her, thinks this girl is so compelling, is so interesting to watch, wants to see her in more. Uh, I'm a devout This American Life fan, and I love a story that she told in kind of a, a oral history way, and it was hilarious, and I want to see more of her. So the question is, what would you do? What would you recommend? What should she do? Well, let's back up because the reason why she came up is because on last week, and by the time you listened to this, it would have been, yeah, the last new episode, because this weekend is a rerun, it's Kristen Wiig, um, it was the last new episode was hosted by Aziz Ansari, and there was a sketch, which is a, a song, that was a song, it was an ode to President Obama, um, and it featured Cecily Strong and Sashir. Right. They the sang song was... To Sir With Love. Yeah. It's a hard song to sing. Uh, no judgment to Cecily and Sashir singing live. Uh, it was a heartfelt tribute that was not necessarily super, super musically revelatory and on key. But you want to see her in more. I'd love to see her in more. And this has happened to many performers at SNL. Julia Louis-Dreyfus did not have a great time there. Jenny Slate was not used very much and went on to do other things. Sarah Silverman passed through those doors. Uh, it's not just women, uh, but those are some who come to mind at the moment of people who went on to have huge careers, but for whom SNL is not necessarily the thing. Uh, Sashir has a comedy partner that she collaborates with often, Nicole Byer, they're really funny together, have a web series, Pursuit of Sexiness, that I really enjoy. But I wonder whether she would be more fun maybe in a longer form scripted series. Maybe it's her humor, which is a little more tongue-in-cheek, really comes out on This American Life. Maybe she should be hosting a podcast. Maybe she should be I don't know, writing herself a sitcom. What is the place where you would like to see a performer that you enjoy, but who you feel like you're not getting enough of. Every cycle of Saturday Night Live has that standout where every sketch features them. Will Ferrell. Sure. Uh, Kristen Wiig. Sure, whether or not you think that's a good use of uh, someone. Kate McKinnon. You right know? now, it's Kate McKinnon. Yeah, you can't argue for Kate McKinnon to be in less because she kills everything she does. That's right whether it's Kellyanne Conway or playing an old person in the Crucible cast party sketch, yeah. she is in her element. And so that's the thing about a show that is live, like Saturday Night Live. It's 
kind of its own zeitgeist, and you don't want to stop that train. But there are people for whom it doesn't work. This is comedy. But it's not a format for everybody. See, again, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who seems to have done okay in the 30-some-odd years since she was on the show. She's fine. She's she's a little more than fine. She's done very well indeed. Uh, so Cher is clearly, though, not one of the Will Ferrells, the Kate McKinnons, the um, the Kristen Wiggs, but will Sashir be a Jenny Slate? And by that you mean, will she have another career elsewhere? I think she will, but I want to see it. Uh, you know, right now she tends to do a lot of stand-up tours and, as I say, performs in improv, but I would like to see her in more scripted programming. She has a small role in a movie that premiered at Sundance uh, called Deidre and Lainey Set a Fire, I believe is it's called. Uh, and I'd like to see more. I'd like to see her do more long-form storytelling. I would even watch a comedy special as per Michael Che uh, that at least lets her lets us get to know her a little better and a little longer. Or Am I in the situation where this is just somebody I love who's not destined to be a big star? Sometimes, sometimes, Lenny and our other friends laugh at me because I have a particular affection for people who don't necessarily warrant star power. Often, I am proven right when years later they become a thing. Uh, but maybe not. I want well, now you have to provide evidence. Well, for example, Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, was somebody who meant something to me long before he meant something to the rest of you. And you all rolled your eyes about some musical theater guy. <laughs> and, you know, we all know who came out of that one. Correct. Hi, baby. Uh, <laughs> Ew! Uh, there are there are multitudes of examples, some of uh, which do not immediately jump to mind. But sometimes, you know, we all have these talent crushes on people who don't necessarily happen. So is this one of those cases? Or do we think that there is a career for somebody who doesn't land on SNL? And should there be like a an out clause? You know, Saturday Night Live has been referred to as sort of a comedy university that for some people they say things like, you know, it's good when they push you out of the nest because otherwise you would never leave. So should there be some sort of step out plan? What kind of post SNL careers do you like to see? Like a Kristen Wiig, like a Fred Armisen, or like a, a Julia Sweeney. Remember Julia Sweeney, guys? Oh, yeah. Uh, where they mostly go on to be doing one-person shows and creating their careers out of that. What's the what's the hope for launching a career post-SNL? That's your question. That's your question for the week, everyone. Do we need to care more about Sashir Zameda? I say yes. I also want to correct myself. The film that she's in at Sundance is called Deidre and Lainey Rob a Train. I need to see that just because Lainey is in the title. I thought you'd enjoy that. My name is never in the title of anything. But who am I talking to anyway? Please <laughs> send us your notes. Send us your rants and complaints and ideas for who we should talk about next. Please let me know if you have noticed my improved posture this episode for greater uh, audibility. 
<laughs> and um, on next week's episode, we will be celebrating an anniversary. That is your hint. We will be back in a week. Thanks for joining us. Show your work, everybody. Bye. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.